He was in a den. He was in a lion's den. He was in a den full of lions. He was not in the fiery furnace. Yeah. All right, friends. Well, we're getting launched out here. I'm sure people are going to come in as uh, the clock continues to roll. We are in Daniel this week, and it's great to have you back. Uh, please turn to 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Give you a second to get there. A little side note as you're turning there in your Bible. One of the cool things about today's study in light of where we are as a church is we're going to be starting one-to-one Bible reading groups pretty soon, which will include the book of Daniel. So if you are interested in studying some more uh, through Daniel with someone else, it's going to be a great time to look into God's Word and see how you can grow together. 1 Peter 1.1 says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world. So what does Peter mean by calling us strangers in the world? Anybody got ideas? What does he mean by calling us strangers in the world? Well, we're supposed to be set apart from worldly things. So. Okay, I like that. Maybe. <laughs> so we're set apart. We're not going to get along with a lot of the culture. Okay. Yep. There are going to be times of uh, argumentation, maybe opposition. Okay. So we are set apart as God's people. In fact, Peter's letter will continue on to say that in chapter 2. We are God's chosen people, a holy priesthood, to be set apart for his purposes. Uh, there's going to be opposition in the world. Any, any other ideas? Those are two really good ideas. So when we think of that question, or really even that statement, it does lead us to, the, to a good question. And it is, what does it mean for us to live in stri- as strangers of the world, yet still be in the world? Right? And that's what we're really going to be looking at as we come to the book of Daniel this morning. <clears throat> it's an interesting book, given that the first six chapters, with... Uh, accounts like the fiery furnace and the lion's den are so familiar, yet the last six chapters of Daniel are some of the least read chapters in the entirety of the Bible. Probably because they're confusing. My hope is that across the next few minutes that we can piece it together as best as we possibly can as one book, not two separate entities, but a singular book. And along the way, I hope that we can learn what it means to live as strangers in the world. So first, let's start with some context. Daniel is the only book that spans the entire exile. Daniel's book is the only book that expands the entire exile. As a teenager, he was taken captive to Babylon during the first wave of exiles. Daniel was still in Babylon as an old man. When the Jews began returning to Jerusalem in 536-537 BC, Daniel spends that entire time in the city of Babylon. The Babylonians were conquered by the Medes and Persians in 539 BC. So chapters 1 through 4, as well as chapter 7 and 8, occur during the reign of the Babylonians. 
But chapter 5 records the fall of the last Babylonian king and the takeover by the Medes. And then chapters 9 and 6 record events that occurred during the reign of the new empire called the Medo-Persian Empire. God's people, it seems, are just caught up as pawns in this great battle for dominance. And that really captures the redemptive historical context of the book. The question on the table is this, who rules the earth? Is God really in control? Or is he at the whims of these empires? And equally important for us, we must think through how ought the people of God behave through all of this? Those are the questions that Daniel will answer. They're questions that I think are extremely relevant to us today. As we come to the theme, we'll basically come to this answer of a theme. So the theme could be this. The Most High, the God of Daniel, sovereignly rules and reigns supreme over all mankind. Therefore, his people are brave in the face of opposition. I'll read that for you again. The Most High, the God of Daniel, sovereignly rules and reigns supreme over all of mankind. Therefore, his people are brave in the face of persecution. You'll notice that in the first sentence, I didn't refer to God by his covenant name, Yahweh. As we have so often, since we were in the book of Exodus, used that name, what we're going to do here is we're going to look at this particularly because Daniel doesn't use that name either. With the exception of one reference to Yahweh in chapter 9, God is largely referred to in this book as the Most High. Thus, the lack of all the capital letters Lord in your English Bible uh, that you have today. What Daniel is doing is he's emphasizing that his God is God over all of the peoples on the earth, not just the Jews. And as you'll recall, these people are in exile. They've not been called not my people, like in Hosea. So how fitting is it then that in chapter 9, when the word Yahweh reappears, it is as Daniel prays about the end of the exile. That one little hint, the use of God's name, tells us so much more about the message of this book. Now on to the book. For some of the book of the Bible, we can basically wander in and understand what the author is doing. But for other books, knowing the structure can help quite a bit. And Daniel most certainly falls into that second category. It's not a book that we can kind of just jump into and get an idea of where we're headed. We really kind of need to understand the structure of what's going on here. So I want you to think for a moment about what you know of the book of Daniel. Right? So we, we mentioned right before class the lion's den. Right? So that kind of comes to our mind. What else kind of comes to your mind when you think of Daniel and what's going on in that book? There's a lot of reference to the end times. Okay, references to the end times. Okay, nice. I think of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dreams and Daniel's interpretations of them. Right. Maybe Daniel uh, praying in the city and how the rulers set him up to basically be arrested, and then sentenced to death. Daniel begins in chapter 1, 
And in verses 1 through 4, with Daniel and the nation of Judah going into exile. At the near and near the end, Daniel chapter 9, we'll see that it's time for the exile to be finished. But if we move a little further in, chapter 2 focuses in on King Nebuchadnezzar's vision of a statue representing four great kingdoms. Now, with the end of the exile in chapter 9, we move a bit further in, and we'll see that in chapters 7 and 8, that there's more visions of kingdoms with four kingdoms again in chapter 7. In all, the content of the first half of the book is recapitulated in the second half. For those of you familiar with the term, the book of Daniel, like many other pieces of ancient literature, is structured as a chiasm. Okay, so I'll draw that out for you here on the board. I have the marker. So chiastic or chiasm, a chiastic structure, basically does this. A1, B1, C being the center of that, then B1, or B2, A2, right? So pointing to there's a central theme or central idea, and one half is leading up to that, and one half is reflecting that, okay? Now, this does not necessarily mean that these are going to be exactly the same, okay? But they are going to look very similar, now, that's one way we can think of chiastic structures. It can also be basically in the formation of the reversal of the opposite of those things. So, it parallels the, the front half and the back half of the book into the middle where the main point lies. And you can see that outline on the back of your handout. I think that's actually laid out for you so you can see how that structure comes into play. As you look at that, let's flip there. Look at your, your outline into that structure. If you can see, it looks like we've put together the chiastic structure right in place for you. We've got A, B, C, all the way to D, and then it goes back to C, B, A. We're trying to help you see the structure that's there in the book. <clears throat> At the middle, there's this main point that's uh, labeled D, where we have two story, or the stories of two kings being humbled from what they thought they were uh, untouchable places of their sovereignty. And set in the middle of those two stories, we find chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, where it says, And the days, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever." For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That is the point of the book of Daniel, that God has humbled even the great king Nebuchadnezzar, conqueror of Judah. Now, for clarity's sake, I, I should point out that there are some of the par- our parallels in Daniel are quite clear, and others are not as clear. So different scholars have slightly different versions of this chiastic structure. And we won't concern ourselves today with exactly how the structure works out, 
we'll simply note that, one, the book is built around this amazing humbling of the kings of men, and then two, that the accounts in the first half can help us understand the visions that are in the second half of the book. So how do we get into this book? Well, to help you understand the structure better, we'll take the chapters that are meant to reinforce each other and look at those pairs together, and we'll start right in the middle and work our way out. Okay? So I wouldn't recommend doing this for every book of the Bible, but I think this is particularly helpful for Daniel. So if we start at Daniel 4 and 5, we'll start right there in the middle of the book with the structure, looking at the chiastic uh, like middle point, the main theme. In these two chapters, we have prideful kings who believe that they rule by their own might. They believe that they are the king of kings. Now, we'll take each in turn. So first, let's look at Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king of the Babylonians. In the first part of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a large tree with different birds nesting in it. And then suddenly, that tree is chopped down. And by this time, Daniel has risen far in the Babylonian government because of God's wisdom that he had given to him. He's also shown himself to be an accurate interpreter of dreams. So, of course, God's the one who gives him the interpretations. It's not just Daniel's might or power or intellectual wisdom. But when we get to the idea here, in chapter 4, verses 24 through 26, Daniel gives the, the king Nebuchadnezzar an interpretation of his dream. He says this, It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my lord the king that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the root of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Now, whether or not Nebuchadnezzar believed Daniel or not, the text doesn't make clear. But the prophecy did come true. In verse 31, as he is reveling in his greatness, a voice from heaven speaks and he is struck with some kind of insanity that strips him of his ability to rule. And he didn't recover until he confesses those verses we read earlier as the main point of the book. And so the story ends with Nebuchadnezzar uttering the words that are in verse 37, where he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And that last sentence read, leads us right into chapter 4's sister chapter, which is chapter 5. So in chapter 5, the Most High delivers the same message to another king. By now, Nebuchadnezzar is dead, and Belshazzar is running Babylon. However, Belshazzar didn't learn that lesson from Nebuchadnezzar. Instead, he threw himself a big party and used, as drinking goblets, the sacred vessels from the temple in Jerusalem. Just like Nebuchadnezzar, he's given a vision from the Most High, and this time in the form of handwriting suddenly appearing on a wall, putting a real damper on the merrymaking. But he doesn't know what the writing means 
And so, Daniel is called to come and to interpret. And after sound, soundly rebuking the king, Daniel, who is no respecter, or no disrespecter of men, he provides this interpretation in verses 26 through 28. He says that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And that very night, Belshazzar is killed. Again, the point of all of this is that the Most High will brook no rivals. He will rule alone over the heavens and earth. He's the same today as he was yesterday. God has not changed. So when people see kingdoms rising and falling and governing in godless ways, they need not fear. Because the Lord is able to see and he's able to reign from his throne. So we've got that right in the middle. The two kings and their, their pride and how the Lord's showing his sovereign rule over them. That's chapters 4 and 5. Okay, so we're starting right in the middle. Now we're going to look at chapters 3 and 6. Okay, so just outside of this, pointing to that bigger part of the heart of the message of Daniel. So those central chapters give us a theology of divine sovereignty, especially in light of the kingdoms of the world. Now as we look at chapters 3 and 6, we're going to see in chapter 3 the famous story of Daniel's three friends, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they, they go to the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar set up a gold image of himself that they all must worship. Well, like proper monotheists who still love their covenantal gods, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will not bow down and worship the image. In response, Nebuchadnezzar is furious that anyone would challenge his universal authority. At the end of verse 15, he says, Who is the God who would deliver you out of my hands? <laughs> really, Nebi? <laughs> Let's see how that plays out. <laughs> so, in response to this, we find these three men as brave as Daniel. In verse 16, we hear this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, guys, that is, that is a fiery response. <laughs> they are showing their backbone right here. And as you can imagine, an answer like that to a king sealed their fate. And into the fire they went. But God rescues them. Not only are they completely protected, but they're joined by a fourth figure in the story, who, according to the king, looks like a son of the gods. So Nebuchadnezzar, who is the god who will deliver you know, he goes and says, who's going to deliver you from my hand? So we can ask him the same thing. Who's the God that's going to deliver you from his hand? The God of the Jews. It's Yahweh. It is the most high. 
that is going to rescue his people. And so in light of all of this, Nebuchadnezzar is astonished. Now they have no good reason to survive a fiery furnace. There's no good reason. There's no explanation to this outside of the fact that God intervened. But then we look at chapter 6 in light of that. We have a similar account. This time the king is somebody named Darius. And the faithful Jewish victim is Daniel. And Daniel, this is Daniel in the lion's den, this story. By now, Daniel's an old man, and his enemies, he has enemies and friends. As well as this, as the well-known story goes, Daniel's enemies look for a way to trap him, but they can't find anything scandalous in him. So they decide to go after the one thing that sticks out, his commitment to pray to God. They conceive, or they convince Darius to pass a decree outlawing prayer to any god but Darius. And then they go and catch Daniel in this criminal act. What's the punishment? To be thrown into the lion's den. But once again, God rescues his servant. And once again, God turns the mouth of a pagan king to his praise. Look at chapter 6, verses 26 and 27. Darius says this, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God. Enduring forever, his kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues, he works signs and wonders. In heaven and on earth, he who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. The point of all this? God is on the throne. But a primary implication of this is important. Just because the true God reigns, it doesn't mean that his people will be exempt from persecution. Just because the true God reigns does not mean that we will be exempt from persecution. In fact, if anything, it means that they will be the target of more persecution. The allegiance of God's people to him will appear a challenge to any earthly claim to sovereignty. So God's people will seem to only be in the way in any earthly power grab. They're going to just be objects. They're going to be the wall stopping them from what they want to get. But it's because of that confidence that we have in the Most High, the fact that he indeed does rule over the kingdoms of men, that the persecuted and afflicted people of God are willing to endure great trial and tribulation for the sake of the God that they love. See, do you see how God's preparing his people to live in an age where they're going to face these things? Right? We've, we've seen the main idea that there's pride from the kings of the earth. There's going to be trials and persecution that God reigns. And in light of that, it doesn't mean that everything's going to be easy for us. But God is preparing us to, to live in light of the context that we, he's placed us within. You know, you think of King Solomon. He could have hardly thought of himself as a stranger and alien in the world. He ruled at what, for all intrusive purposes, was the very center of the world. But by the time that we get to Daniel, God is using his prophets to teach us what it looks like to be citizens of a kingdom that is not of this world. 
The final culmination of God's kingdom is yet to come. So we move from chapters 4 and 5, 3 and 6. Now we're going to look at chapters 2 combined with 7 and 8. <clears throat> Here's the game pairing. That sounds like a triplet, right? Well, yes. 7 and 8 go together, but we're going to look at 2 and 7 and 8. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. This time he has a large statue, the meaning of which only Daniel can interpret. The statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw had a head made of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, and feet of an iron and clay mix. It's quite an interesting statue. <laughs> but in that chapter, that statue was destroyed by a rock, thrown, it seems, from heaven that grows to fill the whole earth. And Daniel explains the meaning of this dream that God had told him. He says in the following verses that each section of the statue represents four successive kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is the golden head, but the Babylonians will be succeeded by three other kingdoms, the last of which will be as strong as iron, yet at the same time as fragile as clay, because it will be divided. And what about the rock that, stat, or, that smashed the statue and itself grew into a mountain? Well, look at verse 44, chapter 2. What is it? Verse 44, In those days of, the, of those kings, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, and this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. It is God's own kingdom. And now, I ask you, how did that get fulfilled? Anybody know how did that, that portion of scripture get fulfilled? The rock that came to crush and smash the kingdoms of the world. Anybody have any ideas? Totally guessing. Mm. The seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. Oh, Heather, I love your biblical theology there. Yes, the the idea that... I I think you're going to be close. (laughs) The, The seed of the serpent crushing the head, or the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. That is a good representation, yes. We'll see further as we look into the New Testament where that comes to light. So when we get here, in chapter 2, Daniel's interpretation seems a little cloudy. And because it pertains to events that he himself is not going to witness. But for us who are further along in history, we see more precisely what's going on here. As we already said, the Babylonian Empire was taken over by the Medo-Persian Empire in 539 BC. That empire is the silver chest and arms. And then, in around 332 BC, the kingdom of Persia was conquered by Alexander the Great of Greece. The Grecian Empire is represented by the legs of bronze. Then, that gave way to the feet of iron and clay, which was the Roman Empire, in the 2nd and 1st centuries B.C. But what we're most interested here is that rock cut out without hands. That, of course, is the kingdom of heaven, and its ruler is the Lord Jesus. 
His conquest didn't come through military might, but through the preaching of the gospel. Over time, though, he conquered the hearts and minds of many in the Roman Empire, and just as we read in the mountain filling in the whole earth in verse 35, Christ's kingdom has spread throughout the entire world. So as we read in verses 44, it is forever. So what Daniel sees here is the victory of the kingdom of God through the preaching of Christ and the spread of his church to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So yes, it is the fulfillment of the, the one that would crush the head of the serpent through the heel that was bruised. It's through the fulfillment of the Lord Jesus and through his gospel that we see the kingdom brought about forever. And with that, then we jump to chapter 7. And what we see there is that the vision of the four kingdoms isn't just an exercise in prediction. It is there to teach an important truth. Okay? Let me say that for you again. Chapter 7 teaches us that this is not just an exercise in prediction, but that it is there to teach us an important truth. So turn to chapter 7. Daniel is going to have a dream of four different beasts. The first resembles a lion with eagle's wings. Quite the combination of an animal. (laughs) The second is a bear devouring bones. The third is a leopard with four wings and four heads. I thought the first was weird, but the, the third is especially weird. And the fourth is so terrible that no animal is is to compare to it. Then Daniel has a vision of God, whom he calls the Ancient of Days. So let's see what happens. Look at verse 9. It says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and I was, as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So God destroys these beasts. But who takes the power and dominion that was once theirs? Look at verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So who is this one like a son of man who will rule forever with the power that God has given to him? Jesus. Yeah. Amen. Look at Mark 14. Mark 14, verses 61 and 62. When Jesus was on trial and asked who this passage referred to here in Daniel 7, listen to how Jesus responds to them. 
Mark 14, 61 and 62, says, again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus alone approached the living God and reigned with him and he will return to the earth on the clouds of heaven to publicly take what is rightfully his. We know by faith that he currently reigns, but soon all will see it. So verse 17 tells us that these four great beasts are four kingdoms. So do you see how chapters 2 and chapter 7 help interpret each other? In chapter 2, you've got the four kingdoms. Chapter 7, you have the four beasts representing four different kingdoms. Chapter 2 is referring to the events in Daniel's current day. And it's much more narrative than it is what we would call apocalyptic. But the four earthly kingdoms that we see in chapter 7, we might, if we read through that quickly, we might miss the main point about the rock that fills the earth. Or we'd be consumed with the idea of the apocalyptic language that's there without recognizing the point. The point is that they're going to be destroyed and the rock's going to come in and be established. Who's the rock? The rock is Jesus. Four beasts that are there um, in chapter 7 don't simply represent specific kingdoms, even as the beast imagery that's represented in Revelation generally refers to the earthly opponents of God. Okay, And there's a, a culmination that's more specific and more amazing that the kingdom of the Son of Man is finally and firmly established and the fulfillment toward which we are still yearning. So what happens with apocalyptic language that becomes really difficult for people as they're reading their Bibles, Daniel 7 through 12, Revelation, they're thinking of these images with very large specificity, and they're not looking to the kingdom of the Lord with the same specificity. Right? So we look at those two things. They're supposed to be images that represent to us what's going to happen, but they're that. They're representations, not mere perfection. So sorry, Tim LaHaye and all the Left Behind series. It may not be exactly like the rapture of clothes in Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> but the, there, are, there are images that represent to us what is going to happen. Okay. So it's not just that we all poof and our clothes just drop. It may look different than that. I think people also read into what's happening now. Yeah. As, a, as like, oh, this must be the end. Exactly. This is happening, which says it in the Bible. There's a really great book that I highly recommend. I'll talk a little bit about it at the end. It's called Discontinuity to Continuity. And it's basically a perspective on the end times uh, that looks at all of the different views that are there and helps us to see where each one has some really like solid pros and where the cons are and how to work through them in a way that's gracious. Because there are going to be people who have different views from each other. Uh, but this is all ultimately in the Lord's hands, right? So we trust the Lord. Uh, we don't trust in our own framework of thinking. We trust in the Lord. When our scripture has some clear things that we can point out, we major on the majors, and what's not major, we leave to be not major. <clears throat> so with that, then we go to chapter 8, 
and I'll leave that for you on your own because I really want to get, make sure I get to chapters 1 and 9 and have some time for your questions. So in chapter 8, what I want you to encourage you to do this week is just notice how in chapter 8, there's something very similar that's going on in that imagery. Okay, Chapters 1 and 9, as we come to the final pairing of chapters here in the structure, we see in chapter 1, the people of God go into exile. And then in chapter 9, the people of God are going out of exile. In chapter 1, we see all four of the Jewish boys. We've got Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're placed in a Babylonian prep school of sorts. <laughs> where They're given meals and uniforms, and they're told what to do for every hour of the day. Right? They're put there because they've shown potential to someday serve the king. Or while they're, they are there, they bravely ask to be exempt from eating foods outside of their religious dietary laws. And the result of that is that God blesses them. Even in exile, God is blessing his people and gives them wisdom. That's another theme of this book. That even in exile, God gives his people wisdom. And then we get to really look at the wonderful encouragement of chapter 9. So look at chapter 9, verse 2. How did Daniel know that the exile was basically almost over? Anybody know? Look at 9, verse 2. How did Daniel know that the exile was almost over? Yeah. Yeah, so my version of the Bible, Christian Standard Bible, says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah that the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. How did he know? From the word. He knew from the word. What a novel concept. That God's word would speak and encourage him. (laughs) Encouragement, understanding. What does Daniel do? He goes to the Bible. And you'll remember from Jeremiah that no one was listening to Jeremiah the prophet in those days, were they? He was called the weeping prophet because nobody listened to him. In Daniel, Daniel's day, people were listening. And the prayer that follows, beginning in verse 3, is eloquent and moving. And you can tell from reading it that Daniel truly knows his God. It's a good challenge for all of us to adopt this kind of language in our own prayers. In fact, I'd encourage you to read and meditate on this chapter this week. And like I said before, it's particularly exciting in the context of Daniel because, again, God, through the entirety of Daniel, is referred to as the Most High. And the single time that he refers to him as Yahweh is right here in chapter 9 in light of the end of the exile. But again, the parallel with chapter 1 is helpful. In chapter 1, the exile wasn't just a physical exile, right? The physical exile merely reflected what was going on in the spiritual exile. Why were they exiled to begin with? They rejected their God. They rejected the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar 
as he brought these people in, what was he trying to do? He was trying to assimilate them to these pagan cultures, these pagan worship gods. And so we'd expect in chapter 9 to see something about an end to both the physical and spiritual exile. And so we do. The physical exile is about to end. And as we saw in verse 2, but the real exile, the exile that began with Adam and Eve, where they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, the exile from God that we all experience because of our sins will not simply end with the Jews' return to Jerusalem. That exile, the exile, the the Jewish exile merely points to ends only when Christ makes an atonement for our sins. So look at verses 24 and 25. It says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy place, Know and understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, the ruler, will be 70 weeks and 62 weeks. Uh, It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. So what do we see here? An end to sin. An end to sin. After After 70 weeks, and an anointed one, a Christ, who in verse 26 shall be cut off and shall have nothing. So what's going on here? The 70 years of physical exile have been finished. But these 70 weeks, these 70 sevens, whatever they are, are just the beginning. But their end will be God's final answer to his people's sin in his atoning death and the triumphant return of the Lord Jesus. The end only comes in him. So you're probably thinking, we've covered basically chapters 1 through 9. What about chapters 10 through 12? Great question. Let me give you the final thoughts there before I take some questions from you. Chapters 10 through 12 don't sit in the mirroring structure that we see in the first nine chapters, but they're just as important. They contain more predictive prophecies about the future of the people of God. And like what we've seen so far, the fulfillment of these prophecies is both near-term and in the last days. So I'm going to leave you to study those and to see those on yourself and how they continue to emphasize that theme of God's rule over all of the nations. Remember the, the, the structure, the pattern, right? Near-term and far-term end-times ideas coming to light here and how God's ruling and reigning over all of that. So the book of Daniel really helps us to speak into the life of exiles in a world where they belong but they don't belong. In our context, we're in the world but we're not of the world. In chapters 4 through 5, we're reminded that those who set themselves up against the Most High will indeed be humbled, whether to their everlasting benefit or their everlasting regret. It shows us that chapters 3 and 6 
of what it looks like to be faithful servants of a sovereign Lord, even when we suffer persecution and opposition for our faith. It helps us to see in chapters 2 and 7 and 8 how the great powers around us are all passing away and that God's kingdom on earth is indeed coming. It shines light on the hope that Daniel had that we can now see clearly to the end of our spiritual exile that has come in Christ. And it looks forward, particularly in chapters 10 through 12, to the eternal reward that's waiting when we finally arrive in our real home, the kingdom of God in his presence forever. Okay. I can't believe I've done it. I've done it. I've ended early to take your questions. I wanted to make sure that there was some time for Daniel. Okay, so um, I think what I'd like to do is just spend a couple of minutes explaining uh, different views of end times and in light of some different positions that may be useful or you may be familiar with. Okay, so there... Hey, brother. Nothing. How are you? you? We're in question time. Perfect. Can you believe it? I know. I know. I know. Okay. So um, I mentioned a book that I really highly recommend everyone buy and have in the church. And it's called Discontinuity to Continuity by Ben Merkel. Okay. Um, That's spelled, Merkel is spelled M-E-R-K-L-E. Okay. Ben Merkel. And what I want to highlight about this is that he does a really wonderful survey of what's known as dispensationalism and covenantal theology, okay? Caleb is a dispensationalist. I am a covenantal theologian. So we're, we're in similar camps. We both agree on the gospel, but in times, we just have some, some differences there. What it comes down to in particular um, that I think is helpful and uh, should be gracious is how we view interpretive matters within the apocalyptic books of the Bible, okay? So we've been familiar uh, with different genres of the Bible, okay? Somebody give me a genre of the Bible that we've, we've, uh, we've studied so far. <clears throat> Maybe even within the Old Testament. Okay. Daniel's what? Prophecy. Okay, so Daniel's prophecy and apocalyptic language. Okay, so uh, I'm making apocalyptic language a subset of prophecy, but it is different than prophecy because what happens in Daniel is different than what happens in Jeremiah. Okay, so we've got that. Okay, um, what is Genesis? Historical narrative. Excellent. Okay, what is Psalms? Wisdom. Yeah, wisdom or poetic literature. Okay. Okay, so what we know within these three different things, okay, so there are going to be some similarities, right? I was struggling with this when I was putting together one-to-one Bible booklets because chapters 1 through 6 of Daniel have a few prophecies, but there's a majority of a narrative structure that's there that's helpful to study. So I was trying to think through with the booklets I'm giving everybody, should I give people narrative questions? Should I give them prophecy questions? What should I do here, right? Then chapters 7 through 12 are all apocalyptic. Um, So there's just different ways to look at these things here, right? So 
I'll give you this. Narrative, we see a storyline. Okay? There's some sort of conflict and resolution. We can say that for even the prophecy that we've seen within here. Now, apocalyptic language is, I like to describe it like a movie that's displaying images that represent core truths, right? So when we look at images, we have to ask ourselves, is this exactly what this image is going to be or is it pointing to something, okay? So when we study those approaches, or when we take our, our approach to the end times, we have to ask ourselves the main question of, is this particularly this specific image or is this an image that represents something? Is there tight bounds to this or is there more of a broader context to how we may look at this? Now, there are really good ways that that can be done and really poor ways that that can be done. Now, a good way that it could be done is with balance. Poor way that we would take a very literal interpretation of apocalyptic literature would be in what we've seen in the cultic following of people like Harold Camping. Okay? Harold Camping predicted that the world was going to end, what was that, May, May 7th, 2011? I mean, he's, he's had multiple... He's had multiple times uh, where he said the world is going to end on this specific date. Yeah. Right? And what he's done is he has gone through the images and representations of Daniel 7 through 12 and the book of Revelation, he's put them all within specific time periods that he has measured out based on what he thinks would be a biblical calendar and said, okay, now if this is all true and this is what the prophecy points to, the end of the world is going to happen right here at this very moment. So there's, he goes with that kind of precision. Okay, Now, that can be, like, do I think Harold Camping was doing that out of negligence? I don't think so. I don't think that would be fair to him. I don't think that would be gracious or generous. I think he gen like genuinely wanted to serve the Lord well. Um, I think he, he lost sight of who was Lord and who had rule over the times and who didn't. Okay, So that was an unhelpful way that he tried to serve the kingdom because what ended up happening was he led a lot of people astray in that process. Um, and from that, when their prediction didn't come to light, then what happened was they, they questioned their faith in God to begin with. Right? Now, there are also ways that it's unhelpful to have a very loose literal interpretation. If we just say everything's figurative, then we're going to just be like, ah, oh, it's just a picture. We're not really going to have any care about the end times. Now, if we look at how Jesus has told us to see the end times in the Gospels, particularly within the Olivet Discourse, he says that it's like a thief coming in the night. But he goes on to say that no one knows the day or the hour. Okay? So he shows us, like, in one hand, we have to be very prepared, and it's an important matter for us to think through how is the world going to end and how is God's kingdom going to be established? How long is his kingdom going to be established? Forever. And then in light of that, too, Who's in control of that? Be prepared, but rest ultimately in the fact that God alone is the one who perfectly knows exactly what he's going to do when he's going to do it. Okay. Questions? Prophecy, apocalyptic language, the book of Daniel. Can you say the name of that book again? Yeah, it's called um, Discontinuity to Continuity. And it's a survey of dispensationalism and covenantal theology. Uh, it's a really great book. I highly recommend it. I think it's super helpful because it shows both sides. 
Uh, again, it shows the, the positives of each side, the weaknesses of each side, and really, ultimately, how we can come to have unity amongst disagreement. Right? Because here's the reality. Within the end times, we've talked about this before, our pyramid of theology, right? We have what's primary, secondary, and third tier. Okay? Within primary, Jesus is Lord, right? We don't agree on that. We're going to throw down, okay? <laughs> what's secondary means that it's important and that Christians may have distinctions among them, but they're not matters of the gospel, okay? So if you have a different view of the end times, that than I have, like Caleb and I have different views at the end times, but neither one of us think that we've got the gospel wrong. We've just gone, hey, here's where you've drawn on your conviction through studying God's word, through prayer, through thinking really hard about this, and you're holding it with an open hand. And I'm doing the same thing, right? And we've had, we've come to places where we really agree uh, with each other on things, and then places where it's like, I just think differently than you hear, man. And I love you, and that's not going to change anything about our unity that's founded in the gospel. And then areas that are tertiary, like third tier, those are really where we have liberty to use our conscience according to scripture. Uh, things like what political party should we vote for? Should we own a gun? Should we not own a gun? Should you drink alcohol? Should you not drink alcohol? Those are things that we have to look at scripture and say, where do we see principles that could be useful to us? That's pretty entertaining, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Okay. What I think is helpful about Merkel's book in particular is that he, within his um, first chapter, he goes through four key questions, um, which is basically what's, what is hermeneutics? How do we study and interpret the Bible? Should we look at this as literal or symbolic? What's the proper role of like topology or imagery that's used within the Bible? And then what's the role of Israel in the church? in all of this. Okay. So, it's 10.01. There's so much more to say about this. Matt Hal has requested that I do a podcast on this and talk about it. I have lots of research to do before I can do that well for you. But I, I, any way I can help you think through these things, I'll say this. Let the main things be the main things. And those main things are often the most simplistic. So let's reign where Jesus reigns and let's rest where we know that he's in control, but we don't know how. Amen.